Welcome to Woman's Zone, connecting women through their stories. Hi, I'm Desiree Ann Martin. I'm a poet, an author, a counsellor, and very proud to say the recent winner of the Arts24 Quella Corona Fiction Award for a short story called Delirium. I'm also a proud member of Women's Zone with the Women's Zone Book Club portfolio. The book club meets every month at the Women's Library at Artscape, and we also invite a guest author to come and speak. Here, I'm talking to multidisciplinary creative artist Kelly Eve Koopman about her book, Because I Couldn't Kill You. It's described as a memoir on her feminist struggle, missing father, and myths of memory, published by Melinda Ferguson Books. Kelly Eve also describes it as a queer manifesto. But I asked her first to describe herself. So I'm Kelly Kropman. I have turned 30 this year um, and have seen it as a momentous <laughs> turning point in my life. Um, I write, I've written a book. I write for film and TV as of re recently as well. I am engaged in um, activist work, largely around gender. I'm trying to be a better activist and a more conscious citizen with kind of every moment that I, that I live. Recently, I've come to identify as an artivist. And it actually, like, when I say it, it sounds like a, a lame term, but I like it because I think it encapsulates the very important tensions and synchronicities between justice-based work and art. I so. absolutely love that, an artivist. Oh, is that your, your own your own word? No, no, it's, it's, you know, one of these millennial terms that exist that I've just co-opted and appropriated. Um. I'm sorry, on millennial. I obviously didn't pick that word up. Um, just expand a bit more on it. It's encapsulating the tension between creativity and activism. That's my loose interpretation. I think it's one of those things that can mean whatever you want, but it's just, I suppose, recognizing that relationship between art making and activism and how they can be very synchronous and how we can make work that is both creative and um and holds justice-based um, ethics, messaging, and action. I mean, you say you just turned 30, so you, you have the self-awareness and you're doing all of these things at such a tender age, I will say. Wow, it's, it just to show such self-awareness and such insight. Things that you loathe? Capitalism, <laughs> racism, <laughs> structural violence. I really dislike the the rules and the structures, the entrenched structures of the society we live in. And a lot of my work, I, I truly believe that that there is different and that there is better. And I really resonated with that article. I, I don't know if you've read it, that Arundhati Roy wrote, wrote at the beginning of COVID-19, like, well, the experience of COVID-19 from her perspective, which was the pandemic as a portal. And like yes. in this very depressing moment, I've been, you know, reflecting a lot on how it's time to just acknowledge that we don't consent to how the world works. It's not working for us. And, you know, maybe it's time to like really allow ourselves to imagine something that actually, that actually works with our existence as, as, as whole humans. And um, 
make it possible. <laughs> you're actively doing that. You're actively involved in a project which is basically to try and try and envisage or um, create a better world. Yes, it's a it, it's been a very um, explorative space. Um, so I, I do a number of projects and you know actions, and this is one that's quite close to my heart, and it's called the New Normal Game. And at the beginning of lockdown, my partner and I and another friend thought it might be cool to create an, a social experiment where we could play with versions of imagined, hopefully better reality, and reality. get people to think about it. I do follow it and it's and it's very intriguing and it's very uh, it's actually quite a hopeful exercise. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. <laughs> okay so let's get to as it is book club. This is Kelly Eve's book called Because I Couldn't Kill You and you're known as a diverse multidisciplinary artist which you've just said you've kind of got your finger in a lot of artistic and creative pie, so to speak. But you say in the book that you had to effectively discipline yourself to put pen to paper. So what made you eventually decide to express yourself with the written word in the form of your debut memoir? So actually, this was very prompted by Melinda Ferguson, who is my publisher. And she came to a talk that my partner and I did at the Open Book Festival and asked whether we'd like to write a book together and writing together proved to be a very challenging exercise and I'd always wanted to write a book you know it was one of my goals and one of my dreams and my partner kind of very generously left me to the page and said you know like this is something that you really want Your baby. Um, and I think the reason why I said that I, I made that that remark about discipline is because people often ask like oh you know what is the process of writing a book and like or what is advice about writing and writing the book just taught me that it really is just about sitting down and actually writing not thinking about writing not being upset with yourself because you can't write and writing without judgment and committing to the practice even though even if what you think you've done is absolutely shit just like getting the words on the paper absolutely I agree with that uh, what you said about writing without judgment is very important and even if you do think that what you've written is crap it's like it's not about that it's about the process of just putting the words down did it flow for you or did it was it over a long period of time did you stop start um it, it did flow through me some somewhat to my detriment so like it became very much a stream of consciousness um, and it was a nightmare for my editor and for my publisher, Melinda. <laughs> what I wanted to do with a memoir was that our lives are not are not chapter by chapter, right? They don't they don't follow like a nice clean arc. Um, and yeah. I think a lot of times with memoir, people think you should have achieved this incredible thing or lived this very romantic, exciting life to be able to reflect on it blow by blow. And I think in the book, I wanted to reflect how messy our consciousness, our feelings, our lives are, and how they don't follow this yeah. you know heroic trajectory yeah. yeah so so you basically word vomited <laughs> pretty much because the way that I read your book was and you can correct me if I'm wrong was that it was part memoir but it was also part anthology so it wasn't I don't know if there are rules about how memoir should be written so I certainly didn't apply any if there are but it didn't feel to me like it was that like, and so this happened and then that happened. And then, then there was this, uh, you know, and then I, I stumbled there and fell there and then I picked myself up and that happened, you know, that's not how I felt in your book. I felt it was, it was about storytelling, not someone's life in a chronological kind of space and time. 
I think that's a very a very good reading and observation. And and what I was thinking about a lot with the book was the idea of memory and collective memory, and also yeah. how like it's very hard to isolate myself from the memory of my family and of the people I love and the the existence, the world in my body, you know. And I I also saw it as an opportunity to reach into that history, and try and create a narrative that could encompass my family's oral history and all the threads of where I come from, because they're so inseparable to who we are. Sometimes I think if we try and tell our stories in this way, like like you've described, you know, yeah. like try and, and simmer it down um, into what our bodies show up like to the world, we yeah. negate and neglect those very important textures of who we are, those erased histories, you know, those, the, yeah. those things that are woven into our fabric, like our cellular yeah. fabric. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I mean, you, like I said, I read it that way and it covers um, a multitude of very important aspects of contemporary societal life. I mean, racial identity, cultural identity, sexual identity, like you said, family secrets and, and the part that they play in how we are formed and also family dysfunction. And you cover uh, mental health issues, which is a topic which is quite close to my heart. And that's just to name um, name a few. I mean, you you really like you know did the whole spectrum of of issues that that impact us as human beings. What what did you feel compelled to write about, and where did you feel resistance and tension? Places that I wouldn't expect. So it was very hard to write about the now. Actually, I found it very hard to write about my um, relationship and my life in the now. And I. I you know, I thought, I think it's because those things are, are very living and we live in them every day. And things that I thought would be hard, like reaching into the very complicated story with my father came out very easily. And I suppose it's because I, I had more time just in my life to process and, and sit with those things. And then weird, like random things came. I found myself really compelled to write about history, you know, and I, yeah. I, I tried to locate the history within the history of my family. And then, like you said, I just kind of sprawled across um, broader thematics. So I wrote about what it was like to be queer. And that was actually very, very challenging. And I realized really? that, the, yeah, this tenuous relationship I, I have with my own queerness. So like, I never wanted to write about queerness. And I say it in my book that I hope the whole book reads as a queer manifesto, because I didn't, I didn't name it explicitly all the time, because I feel sometimes like being quite privileged and not having had um, you know, specific challenges related to that in intersection of my queerness in itself meant that I shouldn't yeah. take up space to speak yeah, about yeah. it. That's very interesting. And you said that, and then you wrote about your own your own battles with mental health issues as well. Is that difficult or was there resistance there? Parts of it was, was quite easy. So at the time that I was writing it, for a portion of the time I was in the clinic, and I felt compelled to write about that experience because it was very fraught for oh. me. Um, and because I was just there in that space, you know, with nothing yeah. else much to do but to reflect and write on it. And that an easy experience or, or was it difficult to be in it and write, writing about it at the same time? Because previously you said, and I experienced this too, is that writing about the more present aspect of my life was actually harder. Like uh, I could quite easily access stuff that happened 20 years ago and write about it. But like things that happened like five years ago or within my family as it is now, I found it very mm. difficult to write about. 
No, I resonate with that. I think for me, the parts of it that were like a little bit socially satirical or, you know, had a bit of a bite or a bit of a critique were yeah. easier. Whereas if it went in on the self a bit more, it was a bit yeah. harder. So. Yeah. Okay. So just, uh, can you tell us a bit about your book, you know, because we've been speaking about it, but, but I've read it and you wrote it, but for anyone who hasn't read the book, what, what can they expect? Oh, such a difficult question. So it's a memoir. Um, it's, it's a very broad memoir that, that I think covers a lot of uh, different kinds of thematics about what it's like to be, I suppose, a young queer woman who identifies as colored and also as black dealing with family issues, mental health issues, identity stuff, lots of stuff. And then also against the backdrop of a conversation with my dad, who at the time I hadn't seen in many, many years. And I was trying to reconcile the idea of we might never see each other again. Um, and that I might just have to accept that this person is missing and the fears around is the next person time I see them going to be, you know, at their funeral, but also processing a lot of the pain and the anger of that relationship, but also a lot of the empathy um, and how that conversation, the backdrop of that conversation with myself kind of sprung off into these various other kinds of, of directions about even national South African memory and our intergenerational trauma issues. There's lots of stuff. <laughs> yeah. There's lots of stuff and, and, and it's brilliant. So I just wanted to ask you, you spoke earlier about privilege. And when I was writing my book, I also felt like that maybe perhaps I was in too privileged a position to have this kind of social commentary on these particular subjects. I wanted to find out if you perhaps felt the same. So I think I would frame it from my position as access, not privilege, because privilege I view from a very kind of historical lens. Um, okay. And, you know, the, the, the many marginalized stories that I, I carry in me and, and the, the generational experience is not one of privilege, but the current experience is that weird, that weird tandem experience of having access, but also knowing that that access could be revoked. Um, within yes. a few months of an, not having a paycheck or within a few beats of, of life handing you some kind of tribulation. And I wrestled with or, it, which is what I spoke about. Or a virus pan pandemic settling or upon a pandemic, us. Which I think really shows up the, the tensions between privilege and access, you know, and mm -hmm. as a, a, a black and colored middle class, it really shown us the importance of intra-class solidarity and how we're at once quite far apart, but we're, we're at once quite close in the system not favoring us, you know, in being okay. able to revoke that access very quickly. So that was the position I wrote from. And an opportunity to use that access, even access to language, you know, being able to use a particular kind of language that could uh, broach different audiences and be considered as good English. You know, that's in, that in itself is, is, is access. So, access. Yeah. Or speaking in a certain yeah. accent, those things. All of yeah. those things that open doors. So what was your experience of, I'm going to ask you about uh, certain parts of your book in a little while, but uh, once you published it, what was the experience? Yeah, that's a good question because, and, and not a lot of people ask it, and I suppose you're asking it because you've also written a book. So writing it is one, one journey, and then publishing and putting it out there is a whole other one that you're not always prepared for. And just the experience of like having your words out there and people like appreciating it or not maybe liking it or you know like yeah. having to engage in lots of conversations around it and and having 
vomited all the stuff out in a book and then trying to engage on it again in, you know, like, you know, interviews and, and wonderful spaces like this. And um, so publishing it for me is almost another story. Um, it, the book has been engaged with in very interesting ways that I, I at once couldn't, couldn't predict. And um, can I ask what was the most interesting reaction or response yes? you had? Well, you know, sometimes I have all those insecurities about, oh, you know, the book isn't doing as well, well as it should, et cetera, et cetera. And then I'll just randomly sometimes get, you know, messages on Instagram or Facebook from people like far away from me or from, you know, wherever having resonated with just very particular parts of it um, that, I, that I would never like even like maybe a description of my grandparents house. Like someone would write me and be like, oh, but that part when you were describing, you know, like that table that was like... <laughs> I've also got an auntie with a Tupperware. <laughs> <laughs> so that's been nice, you know, seeing what people have picked up and recognized as parts of their own, as parts of their own experience. Do you like engage with that? Do you go like, thanks? and Yeah, I, I, yeah sometimes start a conversation or just say thank you. And I'm glad that, you know, it, it, it resonates. And I think that's the interesting thing about like collective memory, right? Because the story is at once very much my own, but it can be there are many access points that are many other people's kinds of stories, the ways that we don't know our ancestry, you know, the ways that we, our families have struggled throughout colonization, slavery, apartheid, and what that has meant for what our family structures hold. Yeah. Um, are, like uh, there have been access points that I think are great to hear other people resonate with. Yeah. I also had a similar, have had similar experiences and they are really quite you know, heartwarming and like, they come from left field and you're just like, wow, I, you're so far removed from my world and yet you can resonate with what I've written, you know. It's an amazing connection, um, the written word. So uh, speaking of the written word, I just wanted to ask you, how did you know what the first and last lines of your book were going to be? I didn't. I initially was going to start the book with a piece that I I wrote about myself and my partner. And as I mentioned, those were some of the, the hard pieces, but also very beautiful pieces for me to write. And it didn't end up that way. But the end was, I, I'm going to share something that's quite intense about it, is that I had finished the book and I'd written an ending where I was kind of like, you know, I'm going to lay this memory to rest. I have closure, not from the external world, but just from this process of diving into myself and my memory yes. of my father. And then as I was about to submit the draft, I got a call out of the blue from my father that shook me <laughs> and changed the ending entirely <laughs> so that I was typing up this thing and crying and, and reflecting on how I in fact hadn't found this you know incredibly miraculous and closure and that hearing that voice was something that was just you know earth-shaking to me and, and presented all other kinds of things and so I changed the end completely and submitted it after I'd submitted the draft and I think the end rings more true than something that would have had a very cut and dried kind of um, almost like romantic nostalgic wrap up. Yeah, yeah. I no, just got an open, it's an open ended story. Barbara. She's mm -hmm. asking, as someone whose father wasn't around for what seems like a fairly long time, what kind of guidance would you suggest to a young person in a similar situation in order to prepare for adulthood? That's a very challenging question, and thank you for it because I think. Um, everyone's situation is different with 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 those kind of experiences you know it's a very unique it's such a common experience you know having an absent parent but and and mine was was unique for various reasons in, and also in terms of mental illness and many other people's might be so there's no 
there's no cut and dried advice, but I think maybe I can reflect on, on what I said about the ending of the book in that you shouldn't think that as women, we do this often. You shouldn't think that you have to carry it all on your shoulders and resolve wonderfully so that you can carry on living your life without these wounds. And that, like, I think as women, we often try and make things not affect us um, because we're expected to do so much, to do so much uh, labor, so much emotional and mental labor. And so I would say that accepting and not judging the pain and being asking for support if you have it and demanding help and healing and support structures, thinking that if it's your duty to carry this, this difficulty individualistically just because it's such a common experience or because you should for some reason is important and recognizing that, that you need and deserve support and love. I hope that answers your question, Barbara. Thanks for that, Kelly. Yes, um, I'm also a big kind of advocate of destigmatizing the shame and fear around asking for help mm-hmm. and getting support, you know, because a lot of people are still hiding in the shadows thinking that it's there's something shameful or there's something embarrassing mm-hmm. or there's something terrifying about just saying, I need help. But there's still so much, so much hidden in the shadows, you know. Mm-hmm. That's also so important in terms of like our social structures. Like it's also not just an individual responsibility. Because for for me, I was in my early 20s before I started talking to someone using the word abuse. I'd never never wanted to even utter it or to frame my experience with that very heavy sounding word. Um, Because I think there's so little out there. And and also depending on the access we have that helps us frame it. And and I mean, you're a counselor and you know, you, you, have to, you as a person have to take that first step also again, based on your access and who you, what you can afford and, and where, you, where you can see some to, to go and seek that support. But it, yeah. it, it should be there differently in our social fabric. Like we should be having these conversations at schools and in public spaces and, you know, helping us understand what this word means, what our experiences mean, that they're not normative. I 100% agree with you, and I also believe that it should start at at a grassroots level with with the kid, with kids, young kids, or even high school kids, um, which is some of the work that I do. And like you say, to engage with those words and give them some kind of normalcy. Um, so yeah, I agree with you 100%. Okay, so some more questions. Go for it. Um, how important is creativity or creative expression to you? and to the people that you surround yourself with? Uh, I think, you know, I've been debating this and had a bit of resistance to it in the last while. And I think it's like absolutely essential. Like I've had this like dichotomy where I used to believe that, you know, art can save the world. And then in in trying to explore more activist work, I I also wrestled with the complexities of that. And like, you know, what does me writing a beautiful poem or writing a book or or anything else mean in in the face of these widespread, you know, structural injustice where many people can't even, can't access art. Well, that's not true. Art making happens on all levels, but in the spaces where where I was operating. Um, But this is why I've come to try and embody this term that I mentioned earlier, um, artivists, and especially work on projects. I mean, I don't even see them as projects. I see them as part of living. You know, sometimes when you're an artist or when you do healing work like you do, it's not like a job. It's not a vocation. You know, yeah. it's, it's an extension of who you are um, that often doesn't get valued enough within the, the crazy capitalist system we live in. But I've seen it as really important and intrinsic 
to justice-based work and to healing work. And I'm always looking for the alignments between those, those spaces. Like, I think that will be part of my next, not my next, but the, the, the challenges, but also the spaces of inspiration I'm working on is, is how to cross-pollinate these kinds of skills and conversations between creativity and activism. And I mean, we need to imagine, we're in a moment where imagination is critical because the systems that have dominated us have been around for a long time and they're not working. And the propaganda around them is so excellent. Uh, but I can Absolutely. see you're very passionate about this particular subject. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think imagination is essential now more than ever. Imagination on all levels. Imagination around food and uh, dismantling the patriarchy and what it means to live in a society that values us for who we are and resistance and existence. Imagination around all those things is like critical oh. skills at the moment. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, in terms of, so are you, do you, juggle and multitask in terms of what you get yourself involved in or is there like one shiny gemstone that's currently caught your eye in terms of what you're busy with yeah I do juggle and multitask and I, to my own detriment sometimes like I think I actually need to learn to cut back a bit but also the the paradox of it is that um it's a bit like I work independently so also you know you're constantly treading that line between what kind of what you do for money, but also how you try and get money, right? Like applying to funding yeah. with multiple projects and seeing what sprouts based on that versus, and so you are kind of in a position where you're, you're forced, you, you hold a lot of things, uh, hoping that some of them will get some investment and then you go in that direction and you put yeah. the other one on the back burner. So that's the kind of, I mean, I need to streamline, but that, that's the complexity of <laughs> working like that. <laughs> Anything particularly special that you're invested in at the moment? So the project you mentioned earlier with the new normal game has made me really excited um, because I think it's like, it's a project that is, is using social media or helps us, me and those of us involved in the project, understand social media in, in many, in different ways. Like it's a weird project, you know, there are these abstract videos and people are answering these weird challenges and it's gotten some interest from like weird abstract arty people. But I think social media can be such a toxic space. And so, yeah, that's been like really interesting to just play out. How have you navigated that? Have you, ha have you experienced the toxicity? Not necessarily, because it's also a very curated space. So I think yeah. the, the rules of engagement, are, even though they're not very out there, are, are felt. Um, and I think it, uh, it also attracts people that are looking to engage in, in something yeah. a little bit different. So yeah, that's one project. And I think it's also the one that I'm kind of steeped in right now, while other things are in development, that has been quite, there's been a lot of learning from it. And just for those who are, are listening and watching at the moment, that is on Facebook, The New Normal Game. Pre yeah, there's a website too, but where it all plays out is is on Facebook. Yeah, okay. it's just called The New Normal Game on Facebook. Okay, is there an excerpt from your book that you'd like to read? You know, I was thinking that because you mentioned it and because I've never actually been asked to read it before, which I think is not great because I love this chapter, is the one on, <laughs> on top of it. Okay, so I'll go like kind of half, it's three quarters of the way through the reading. Um, and it's called Tapaway and Herzogis. And just to give some of the context of Herzogis, they're these like traditional Christmas-based desserts. It's like these coconut and jam tarts that we used to make a lot in our household. And one day I just Googled the origin of the word and it was, it's named after General Herzog, who at one point decided to give 
light skin colored women particularly he campaigned to give them the vote hoping that they would vote essentially on his side and then backtracked on his promise so hedgehogs were named after him and then a year later those little cookies with the white and black faces called twigfrichis like two face were also named after him because he was essentially two face so i find food and the history of it very very interesting okay so let's go somehow tupperware has become a container that contains a healthy portion of my insecurities My own Tupperware drawer is not neatly organized. I don't have the containers arranged according to size with all the matching lids. Despite or perhaps because of being raised among so much order, I am disappointingly messy. I unfortunately do not iron my clothes or make my bed and my personal possessions live in perpetual disarray. As a cluttered adult, a woman who has so obviously failed at applying the lessons of childhood, the sight of the tidy Tupperware in my grandmother's or aunt's pristine cupboards fills me with a range of paradoxical emotions, joy, anger, resentment, satisfaction. Tupperware evokes for me the experience of generosity, but also excess. The idea of making so much food that there will always be enough for people to take home and put in the fridge for the next day. Making so much food that you will never have to go hungry. Making so much food that you could drown in it. Comforted by the fact that there are always leftovers, something for later. I sometimes imagine that things would be easier if I was the kind of girl who had a cupboard full of matching lids, a woman who can hold it in, seal it all neat and shut, a tidy aspirational Marie Kondo kind of woman who only has matching socks and has learned the magical art of self-organization and compartmentalization, which is of course a paternalistic philosophical ideal marketed particularly to women as the solution to our innate messiness. Over the years, Tupperware has become a symbol of everything I have come to loathe and love about being a colored woman. But perhaps I'm being ridiculous. Why throw shade at Tupperware? After all, Tupperware is as iconic as it is infallible. It has stood the test of generations. It is beloved by women the world over, a treasure of the domestic that cuts through class, culture, and country. Ubiquitous. At the end of the world, it'll be there. Bobbing along in the indomitable, noxious sea monster of other plastic waste that slowly ate the world. And the aliens or the terrestrial beings that will come after after us, perhaps formed from electronic waste, plants, and ocean zooids, will find amongst piles of carbon graphite, endless fields of cell phones, useless, useless diamonds on withered finger bones, mountains of sanitary pads, apples with lurid GMO sheen on the outside, but rotten to the core. At the end of the world, they will find the fruitcake. They'll find it in a large faded Tupperware, sealed tight, maybe marked Auntie Bronwyn's give back. And perhaps once a week or so, in sacred ritual, they will break the fruitcake in honor of the mysterious Auntie Bronwyn, who never did get her Tupperware back, but nevertheless made an indelible mark on time. These beings with their hands or webs or whatever will examine the leftovers of us, Tupperware, fruitcake, and the mess of endless irrepressible chaos. So I wrote about fruitcake there in that paragraph also. And now no one really likes it, but it's like timeless, you know, and lasts months and months. So. It can last forever. And then you can hit someone on the head with it and give them a concussion. Thank you so much for being in conversation with me. Just uh, where can people obtain copies of your book? Everywhere. So Amazon, take a lot if you're getting it online. I would like to find buying from independent bookstores, um, especially during this time. So if you're in Cape Town, um, the book lounge. Um, but also exclusive books and other bookstores. So yeah, it's pretty much accessible wherever you buy your books. No Kindle version, unfortunately, I don't think. Not yet. Yeah. But thank you so much. And now I just I would like to open open up the space if anybody else has any questions. Uh, Kate, are you asking who are Kelly Eve's role models? 
So the late Toni Morrison was a huge role model of mine, but also just the women in my life. Like I feel like the women in our lives are often our role models. So my mother, my partner, my grandmother, you know, these are all people who I emulate and who I really look up to. Aaron Dirty Roy is pretty cool. I'm, I'm very into her. <laughs> but, cool. yeah. Thank you. Kelly Eve, if you want to be found, where can you be found? Um, you can find me on my Facebook, Kelly Eve Kropman, or on my Instagram, um, which is called The Night Before Kelly. Um, Night. It's a lame joke, like Christmas Eve, Kelly Eve. So, yeah, you can find me there. Hey, yo, hey, yo. Hey, yo, hey.